Good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 11. Be finishing up that chapter this morning, Lord willing. Moving on to chapter 12 next time. What I want to do is just read these handful of verses here and then pray and we'll get into our time together this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Here is the word of the living God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the center of our lives, because you have made him the center of our lives through granting us a new heart. And I pray that our heart's affections today would be moved by him and pointed in his direction. And Lord, would you work within us the characteristic that is front and center in these verses that we see today, a heart of humility. Do this by the power of the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, after I opened my first bank account, I uh, racked up a handful of overdraft fees one time, two times, okay, more than two times. Um, And each time I did, my dad became aware of it. And each time I I got a lecture. That's what I would call it, a lecture, right? Now, you have to realize my my dad was not just uh, any old man who knew some things. Uh, He was a CFP, which is Certified Financial Planner, or in my case, Certified Financial Papa. He was in the business of helping people manage their finances. So you can imagine both the embarrassment that he felt when his son failed to manage manage his finances well and his disappointment that I didn't listen to his counsel. Be that as it may, my dad offered me truth on how to manage my finances better, but I would still get overdraft fees. As I look back, I believe my overdraft fees were not due to a lack of knowledge, but a lack of humility. When it comes to our reception of truth, and even spiritual truth, it's not that we don't have the truth before us. Exposure is not the problem. The problem is that we lack the humility to accept the truth. We have God's truth before us, but due to pride, we won't bring the truth in us. In our text today, Jesus is going to follow up his condemnation of certain cities that he ministered in, cities that did not repent due to pride. 
We're going to follow that up with the subject of God's revelation of God, uh, rather of spiritual truth to the humble in verses 25 through 27. We're going to see God's revelation of truth is a matter of his sovereign and gracious will. Uh, The people to whom he sovereignly reveals his truth are those who have humbled themselves before the living God. And then secondly, we're going to see Jesus' invitation to the humble. Uh, It's an invitation to the humble person to come to the humble Lord and receive a promise. And that promise is the promise of rest. promise of rest to be enjoyed now and daily and forever. And then third, we're going to seek to apply this passage, which will come as an exhortation or an encouragement to us to approach your humble Lord with a humble heart. Approach your humble Lord with a humble heart. So that is the direction we're headed this morning from Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. Turn our attention first to God's revelation of spiritual truth to the humble in verses 25 through 27 as we come. To verse 25, we read, at that time, at that time, these words, at that time, connect us back to the previous section, which is verses 20 through 24. And what we saw from those verses was Jesus pronouncing woes on those cities that he ministered to that rejected him. Though he performed miracles there, they did not perceive their spiritual importance. Uh, Look again at verse 20. The text says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus went to these cities, performed miracles, and yet he was met with indifference. No repentance. No turning from their ways and following Jesus. And so Jesus denounced them. So as we come to verses 25 through 30, we need to recognize based on these words at that time that we are in the same time frame of what was going on in verses 20 through 24. As we look back at verse 25, we read that at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This word for declared is the Greek word ex amalageo. It means to declare openly in acknowledgement. And in this context, it means to declare openly in acknowledgement God's majesty and his goodness. Uh, We see the majesty of God the Father here in Jesus' prayer. And that when it comes to hiding truth and revealing truth, God the Father reserves the sovereign right to hide and reveal truth to whomever he wills. He is a majestic king who rules over his human creation with total sovereignty. But in Jesus' prayer, we we also see the acknowledgement of God's goodness. Notice the Father has a, a gracious will here. He determines to do good. And the recipients of his goodness, based on the end of verse 25, are little children to whom the Father reveals his truth. These little children are the the blessed beneficiaries of God's gracious will. They are the ones to whom God sovereignly reveals himself. So that, in a nutshell, is what Jesus is declaring in his prayer to his Father. But let's go deeper into Jesus' acknowledgement of God the Father in this prayer. We 
learn here that the Father, notice the text, is Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. This combination here of heaven and earth no doubt takes us back to Genesis 1.1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth there as it is here in Jesus' prayer, speaking of the entire universe. God the Father is Lord of the whole universe. Every galaxy and every gene, every molecule and every man, from the invisible to the visible, God the Father is sovereign over it all. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And since he is the Lord of everything, it's no wonder that when it comes to the hiding and revealing of spiritual truth, he is sovereign over that as well. This most certainly relates to God's sovereignty and salvation. And the New Testament could be mine for all the riches of this truth that God is sovereign in salvation. But in Jesus' prayer here, there's a limited focus on the subject of God's sovereignty. Uh, with precision, he narrows the lens in on the heart attitudes of those who either have spiritual truth hidden from them or have spiritual truth revealed to them. That's the focus in this little text, these set of verses. Notice this first group of people. Jesus says again, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Notice the wise and the understanding, who are the wise and the understanding. First, need to recognize that Jesus is not referring to those who fear the Lord and so have wisdom and understanding, okay? Uh, he's not using wise and understanding in that positive sense. He's using these terms, we might say, with air quotes <laughs> around the wise and around the understanding. These are, are people who claim to be wise. We could borrow language from the Apostle Paul who said that they, they profess to be wise, but they are fools. This is Romans chapter 1. Uh, we could also appeal to other verses in the Proverbs where it speaks about people who are, are wise in their, their own eyes. These are people who think they are wise, but in the analysis of heaven, they are fools. And in the context, they are those in the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum who didn't repent. Uh, though Jesus had outwardly revealed himself to them as the Messiah through his miracles, they did not repent and follow him. They did not repent and follow him because they didn't think they needed Jesus. And they're just like anybody today who is self-reliant and doesn't believe that they have any need for the Lord. Again, people who are claiming to be wise, but in fact are fools. And it is this person that Jesus says the Father will conceal his truth from. He will not throw his pearls before pigs. He, he will not reveal his precious truth to those who will trample them underfoot. We all know the passage, right? God is opposed to the, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's the proud heart from which God's truth is concealed. The only posture of the heart that the Father accepts is the one that is described by the words of Jesus here, little children. Father sovereignly reveals his truth to little children. Now, is Jesus being literal here with, with little children? Is he just talking about infants and they alone have truth revealed to them? Well, I think this is actually figurative language for just a certain attitude of the heart. Uh, little children are, are dependent hearts, right? Um, they have a whole lot of needs. I'm a father of four children. One of them's three. And my wife can testify to you just how needy that three-year-old is. 
right? And some of you know how needy my three-year-old is, right? Abigail's laughing because she spent some time with him. But that's the fact. Children are, are dependent with a capital D, we could say. But that's how little children are. They know their need. And Jesus is using the metaphor here, likening humble people to little children who know that they need God. These people know they need God. Humble people know that they are sinners in need of a Savior. They know that they need a better master than the master of sin. They're fully aware of their spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. Jesus calls them poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. And matter of fact, that is the first attitude that he mentions there in the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe is the gateway into any and all spiritual truth. Someone must be poor in spirit. Someone must be impoverished in spirit, knowing that they need God before they can receive any spiritual truth. Poor in spirit, humble, like little children. And as Jesus prays here, this is the the person to whom the Father has sovereignly determined to reveal spiritual truth. But guess who else possesses this sovereignty? Jesus claims that he himself is sovereign over who receives spiritual truth. In verse 27, Jesus pivots from praying to the Father to stating propositional truth that contains affirmation that he also has sovereignty in revealing truth. Notice verse 27. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We see by this last clause here that knowing God the Father is a a privilege bestowed on those whom the Son chooses to have that knowledge. And just so we're clear, when Jesus speaks of the Son here, he's referring to himself as the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he perfectly knows the Father. He has intimate knowledge of God the Father because he himself is God. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. And as the Son of God, he has been given the right to sovereignly choose who will know the Father. Now, why does the Son have this right of His? What gives Him the right to have such sovereignty over who comes to know the Father? Well, the beginning of this verse tells us that it's because all things have been handed over to Him by the Father. In other words, the Son of God has received from the Father universal sovereignty. Son of God is sovereign over the universe, a privilege that He has received from His Father. Now, we may ask, when did he receive this universal sovereignty? Well, the text here doesn't spell out that. Jesus is simply saying that he is sovereign over who will come to know God the Father. And and I take that since Jesus praises the Father back in his prayer in verse 25 for revealing spiritual truth to the humble, that those are the precise people that the Lord Jesus also reveals the Father to. As you see, brothers and sisters, the Father and the Son are united in purpose. They always have been. The Son has never at any time gone rogue in his life. 
Never. His, his fulfillment of the Father's purpose has always been perfect. He says of his own commitment to carry out the Father's will, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' very sustenance, his livelihood was to carry out his Father's purpose and sending him, and Jesus did that with perfection. So the Son of God is united with the Father in revealing spiritual truth to the humble, just as his Father reveals truth to the same. And it's to this, this hard attitude of humility that Jesus gives an invitation in the following verses. A group of verses that I, I think are no doubt beloved by many of us. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice here, the invitation, come to me. The invited, all who are weary and heavy laden. And the promise, I will give you rest. You got the invitation, the invited, and the promise. The fact that this invitation is an invitation to come to Jesus says something fundamental about the heart of Christianity. This is at the very heart of the Christian faith. And that is, the heart of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not merely a mental assent to a set of facts about the Christian faith, as necessary as those facts, those truths are. It's rather, though, an involvement of the complete person, mind, will, and emotions to approach the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and trust him to begin a new relationship with him, to commit wholeheartedly to him. It's, it's personal. Notice Jesus said, come to me personal invitation, personal relationship. And then notice the invited. Jesus invites the weary and the heavy laden. He invites the humble, the broken, the downcast, the needy. He doesn't invite the proud. The proud must be humbled before they are prepared for relationship with Christ. We could think of the Apostle Paul as a good example here on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. He was proud of his role, proud of his background, proud of his accomplishments. But the Lord blinded him. He humbled him. And it was that humility, that humiliation in the life of the Apostle Paul that began his journey. But the point is, he had to be humbled before he came to Christ. No one is a recipient of God's grace without first being a recipient of a humble heart. James 4, 6, a verse we've already quoted, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Jesus' invitation is to the humble, those who are weary and heavy laden. Uh, by the way, the weary and the heavy laden definitely has significance to those living at the time that Jesus spoke these words. Uh, those whom Jesus was inviting to come to him were those who were regularly sitting under the instruction of religious leaders in their day who had placed on their consciences rules and traditions that were impossible to bear. Some of these religious leaders, the scribes, had developed an entire tradition that Jesus referred to as the tradition of the elders in Matthew 15 too, which were additions to God's commands. They told people, here are the commands of God, but here are more rules you have to keep in addition if you really want to please God. And in fact, we're going 
We're going to turn into Matthew chapter 12, and there's going to be this controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders over the Sabbath keeping. And Jesus is going to break some rules of the tradition of the elders by what he does on the Sabbath day. Not breaking the word of God, but breaking the tradition. And the Sabbath rules are some of the most interesting rules, by the way, if you could just kind of look in the background of some of the Jewish literature. There was one in which on the Sabbath day, you could not spit on the ground because if you happen to walk over where you spit and you rub the spit and the dirt together, that would be considered tilling up the ground. And you were not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus was rebuking. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus is saying was being laid on the shoulders and on the consciences of people in Jesus' day. They were weary from this legalism. Matter of fact, in Matthew 23, 4, Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees because, quote, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And, oh, Jesus said that they themselves were not willing to move them with a finger. So not only were they legalistic, they were also hypocrites. And so it was into this kind, again, this kind of weariness, this spiritual exhaustion that Jesus spoke. He was talking to people who were worn out by man's religion. But he could also be talking about people who were just tired of trying to please God by keeping his commands in their own effort. John MacArthur has a helpful quote at this point. He says, Jesus is calling to himself everyone who is exhausted from trying to find and please God in his own resources. Jesus invited the person who is wearied from his vain search for truth through human wisdom, who is exhausted from trying to earn salvation, and who is despaired of achieving God's standard of righteousness. You know, maybe many of us can testify to that reality before we came to know Christ. We were working hard to try to please God. We were trying to earn salvation by our own efforts, but we came to the place by the grace of God. We were humbled to realize that our works cannot achieve the salvation that is needed. No work is good enough. No one is saved, Ephesians 2, by their works, right? It's all by the grace of God. These are the people to whom Jesus says, again, come to me. And when they do, they, they're given this beautiful promise, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. By the way, have you noticed how much we humans, we like rest? Uh, I think we're hardwired for rest by our creator. If we don't get rest, we can't function correctly. It's, it's not only a necessity to rest, but I also think it's an enjoyment to rest. Okay, how many, can I get an amen? Man, that was the biggest amen we got so far. Some of you are like, when I leave today, I'm going to go home and take a nap. We like rest. We enjoy it. Yes. We very much so value physical rest, but how much more should we value spiritual rest? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's getting at spiritual rest. He's getting at the rest of the soul. That's precisely the kind of rest that Jesus is talking about in our verse. Look at the end of verse 29. He clarifies that coming to him will result in rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. The, the weary and heavy laden soul, the, the humbled and overburdened soul needs rest. It needs peace with God. Note that. The, the, the wearied soul needs peace with God. You know, you've probably heard people say before, 
I need to find peace with myself. Or I need to forgive myself. You know, by the way, that's not even anywhere in the scripture. Brothers and sisters, you, you do not need to find peace with yourself. You need to find peace with God. Because the only way and the gateway into peace in any other realm is through peace with Almighty God. And behind this is the reality that, that our own sin has resulted in separation with God. We are under God's wrath. We do not have a peaceful relationship in our unregenerate state, in our sinful state before coming to Christ. We are absolutely under his wrath. We are absolutely outside of peace with God. We need peace with God. And the only way to that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we come to him limping and broken, he says, I'll give you rest. Now, how does he do that? How does he, how does he give us rest we just kind of mentioned it already, but it's based on, on what he did at Calvary. He, he placed a cross on his back and walked up that hill to be nailed on the cross that he carried. And on that cross, he absorbed our sins and the very wrath of God. Then he died, and then he rose from the dead. And the rest that he gives is based on that work of his to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And, and Romans chapter 8 says this beautiful thing. It says, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You have peace with God. Now that's an objective truth. That's an objective reality. What Jesus is talking about, though, is the experience of that rest. The experience of it in our souls, in our hearts. That's what he's speaking about. He's, he's not merely talking, again, about this objective truth about God giving us peace, but he's talking about this inner rest that we can experience based on his death and resurrection. Uh, this rest is that rest of the soul when the soul says, I, though a sinner, have been saved by Jesus and belong to God. I am resting in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, this is the kind of rest we especially need in those moments when we may doubt, do, do I really belong to God? Am I really truly saved? And certainly when we evaluate the, the genuineness of our salvation, we look at fruit in our lives and we say, is there an evidence of fruit in our lives? Has the Lord produced something in my life of good works? And when we do that, we don't look for the perfection of good works, right? We look for the presence of good works. Are good works present? But at the end of the day, the thing that is uh, a pillow for our heads, what we rest our heads on, what is the foundation and the basis of our salvation is not our works, but the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our head on the finished work of Jesus. That is what gives us rest for our souls because everything is right between us and God. Everything is as it should be. It's at peace. We're at peace. In the song, Jesus Paid It All, beautiful song, chorus says, Jesus paid it all. But what does the rest of it say? Just that next line, all to him I owe. And you know that song really well. Jesus paid it all, not period, comma, though, all to him I owe. And as we turn the corner, we actually see the Lord Jesus talk about our, our allegiance to him, what, what we owe him now that we're saved. We actually belong to him. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we look at these verses. But, but look at here. He says, he says, take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, when, when we come to Christ, we take on a yoke and a burden. We trade an old yoke and an old burden for a new yoke and a new burden. When Jesus speaks about a yoke here, he's using a common metaphor in his day for submitting to the teacher of another or the teaching of another. In the, the Jewish background of the Mishnah, there are two similar uses like this for the yoke, one referring to the yoke of the commandments and the other referring to the yoke of the Torah, meaning the, the first five books of the Old Testament. In both cases, the picture is of God's law as a yoke to wear in life. And I think that's the same way that Jesus is using it, but let me draw out one thing in significance here. And it has to do with what realm this yoke was drawn from. Where do we draw this realm from? Well, some, some have wanted to suggest that the yoke being referenced here is the yoke of oxen. Um, that's probably where we would go immediately to think about a yoke that was placed upon two oxen, and uh, they would be carrying a load, right, as they drove forward. Um, that is a possible background here, and it's used this way elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, but there is reason to question that an animal yoke is being used here by Jesus. It's, I think, much more likely that Jesus is speaking here of a human yoke, uh, which, would, which would be used to shoulder the work, get this, of a master. I quote R.T. France, who said, This uh, yoke implies obedience, indeed, often slavery, what makes the difference is what sort of master one is serving. So Jesus is drawing from the realm of servitude or slavery here. So you see, when we first came to Christ for the first time, we made a transference of ownership, a trade in masters. Uh, we used to be enslaved to sin, but now we are enslaved to Christ. We used to carry the yoke of unrighteousness on our shoulders. Now we carry the yoke of righteousness. Notice what the Apostle Paul said about this in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin... And notice the transference here. And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see, when we came to Christ, it's not as if we threw off one yoke only to remain yokeless. No, we threw off the yoke of sin and put on the yoke of Christ. We, we threw off a yoke of tyranny and we received a yoke of goodness. And that yoke of goodness is due to the fact that the person that we are now yoked to is good. He really is a good master. Jesus wants to remind us of his goodness because just in case the yoke and slavery makes us think of a bad master who mistreats us, Jesus cuts off all doubt by saying this, take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly of heart. I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus is not a harsh master, but a good master. When we come to Jesus, we're met with a heart that is sympathetic toward us. 
He knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. He knows that we're fraught with weakness and frailty and sin and temptation. He knows all about us. Instead of using that knowledge against us, he is gentle and lowly of heart. Gentle here is a a very important word. The meaning of it pertains to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Now, when I said that, you probably just thought about somebody, right? This is a person who is considerate, though, of others. The person who is gentle is considerate of others. They're, They're not those who think too highly of themselves so that they have no concern for others. You know, the person who isn't gentle, who is inconsiderate or harsh, uses people to get what they want, right? People are simply steps to be walked up to reach their throne of self-importance. But not Jesus. Though he has the right to the highest throne in the heaven of heavens, he doesn't treat his people like the lowest of dirt. Far from it, he is gentle. His importance doesn't prevent him from caring about us. I think we see this in verses like, This one in Hebrews chapter 4, which says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And and, and notice here the mention of Jesus passing through the heavens. This This is referring to his ascension, all part of his exaltation as king. Jesus is king, amen? Okay, is Jesus, is he important? You bet he is. Does that prevent us, prevent him from serving us? No. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is able to sympathize with our human weaknesses, with our temptations. He understands. This makes him a good master. Jesus is good because he's He's gentle, but he's also good because he is lowly in heart. He says that about himself, lowly in heart. Uh, Lowly in heart or or humble in heart refers to one who is unassuming and demonstrates humility, uh, according to one commentator. Uh, Another commentator makes the point that since this quality is in the heart of Jesus, I love this, it locates humility at the very center of his being. It, It was not that he pretended to be humble and made a show of being lowly, He really was lowly, and that at the very center of all that he was. I find that to be significant because there's no pretense on the part of our Lord. He never play acts in his humility. There's no facade about him. He is the genuine article, and he has proven that insofar as he humbled himself to die on the cross for our sins, and he is seated at the Father's right hand, never slumbering and never sleeping on his prayers for us. I read something really beautiful yesterday, and it said that though we at times fail to pray to the Lord, our Lord never fails to pray for us. Our our, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is always interceding on our behalf. He is authentic in his humility. He is humble in heart. And as we look at the last verse here in verse 30, Jesus says, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If I were to summarize what Jesus is saying here, I'd say that that what he means is that following him and his teaching is easy and light. Okay? 
And if that is what Jesus means here, and I think that is the case, I want to let that stand and not try to twist myself into some kind of exegetical pretzel uh, or kill it by the death of a thousand qualifications. Um, I want to, and I invite all of us to accept this teaching from Jesus just as it stands. Following him and his teaching is not burdensome. Our flesh makes it hard to follow him, right? And before we were converted, it was impossible to follow him. But following Jesus, now as his kids, is not burdensome. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I mean, I'm sorry, John. First John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And notice this. And his commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. Church, let that, let that sink in. Doing the will of Christ is not unbearable or unreasonably demanding. The, the demands or the commands of Jesus are, we might say, keepable. <laughs> and the reason for that is because we are new creations in Christ. The Lord has made our hearts new, right? He's given us a new heart. And with that heart come affections for the things of God. When we became Christians, God gave us a heart that beats for him. God gave us a heart that had affections that wanted to do the will of God. Before that, we didn't, but now we do. And with that heart, he's also given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the Holy Spirit is said in the New Testament to be, yes, the third person of the Trinity who indwells us, but also the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And if that same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us, we can live for God. That's the point of those verses in the New Testament. We have all the resources that we need to live for Christ. And when we do, we find this glorious truth that his commandments, what he demands from us, is not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And I think the only way we really find this to be true is when we put it into practice. Um, it's going to be a silly analogy, but I'm going to go with it. It's not in my notes. But let's say you're a golfer, and uh, you've got this new driver that's sitting up. Rick wants to say putter because he just purchased a new putter last week. Let's use a driver, though, because you can really hit the ball far with a driver. You have this driver sitting up on your shelf or in your bag. Um, you can sit there and admire that driver all day long. It's a powerful driver, right? That's the way it was advertised to you, Rick, wasn't it? But you can't know the power of that driver until you take it out and you hit with it, right? Well, it's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord that we cannot know the power of God unless we apply his truth to our lives. We won't experience the, the wave of God's grace and the rhythms of his grace and his empowering grace in our lives until we take a step forward in obedience. His power comes in obedience. And that's when we find Jesus to be absolutely true with what he says about his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So as we wrap up our time together, let me just offer this exhortation based on all that we've looked at. I think we want to approach our humble Lord with a humble heart and this is certainly true for someone who's never trusted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To come to the Lord with humility and receive salvation, Jesus said, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. He promises that. But for us who are Christians, those of us who are believers, we can draw some truth from this, right? Because 
The same Jesus that is being presented in this passage is spoken about in the scripture as the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever, right? He is, he has a yoke that is easy and it's light and he invites you to come to him. If you're weary and heavy laden, you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with temptation, you're struggling with the weakness of your own flesh today. You find yourself within your own soul spiritually maybe just tired and exhausted by things and maybe it's because you haven't spent time in God's word or you haven't been, spent time in, in prayer. Okay, we can, we can take a passage like this and realize that Jesus is offering an invitation to come to him today. He'll receive you in humility. He'll receive you as you come to him in genuine repentance, amen? And this is where we draw our strength from him anyways. He is our strength. He is the focus of our lives. And when his strength is perfected in our weakness, guess whose power is put on display? His. It's all about him. It's all for his glory and for our good. Amen.